So it is August 10th. It is 2014. Our message today is called Progression of Attitudes. In your bulletin, uh, uncharacteristically for me, you have a few notes. You've got uh, an insert that will have some words for you that you get to define. And you'll have a page behind it that's blank for you to be able to take notes. For me to do that, I have to know what I'm preaching on, and you need to know I usually decide that during our worship time. But yesterday, on the way, or day before, on the way to a prayer meeting, my son asked me a question. And, you know, that's very biblical. The Lord told the Israelites to do certain things so that when their children asked, they could give them the answer. And I thought that if my son wanted to know, there was a chance that somewhere out there you might want to know. Turn with me to Matthew 5. I want to read through what is called the Beatitudes and then talk to you for a moment about these. Now, if you think you know everything there is to know about the Beatitudes, if you have been in church all of your life and you can quote them and you are satisfied that you have mastered them, I'm going to tell you, you still better hang on because I doubt you have heard what we're going to share today. In Matthew 5, starting in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Oh my goodness. For they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I was reading what one man wrote about the Beatitudes and... I loved it. It might be the most concise commentary I've ever seen. He said he had three points about the Beatitudes. Number one, they're all spiritual. Number two, they're all unpopular. Number three, they're all needed. Can anybody say amen? amen. When we speak about these words being spiritual, John 6, 63, I just quote it for you. He said, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. When Jesus spoke, it was not simply to hear himself speak. It was not to exercise uh, verbose nomenclature. It was not to demonstrate the ability to articulate. When he spoke, something spiritual comes to life. His words themselves are life, so much so that Peter spoke about Jesus and said, you have the very words of life. I would say we need to discern what the spiritual meaning of Jesus' words are. Can you say amen to that? Amen. When we say that they are all unpopular, in John 8, 37, the latter half of the verse says this, You are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. When you speak a spiritual word to a man who is dead spiritually, it will either bring him to life or make him desire to take your life. There is no middle ground. Men of great faith often inspire, but more often than not, they aggravate. There is something off-world about them, something not quite of this creation in their reasoning, and it's unnerving. We like our prophets dead. 
You know, everyone loves Smith Wigglesworth today, but not everyone loved him in his day. Everyone loves Leonard Ravenhill today, but the same men who quote him today hated him while he was alive. And it's always been that way because a spiritual word has a way of addressing our spiritual condition. Do you want your spiritual condition addressed today? They're all presently needed. This was John 6, 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We need these words that Jesus spoke, not quilted on our walls, not tattooed on shirts, not put away on a bookmark somewhere. We need these words like flowers need sunshine and water. We need to understand them. We need to apply them. We need to absorb them. We need to feed on them like you will eat something after church today. Have you ever heard something so many times or thought that you had heard it so many times that you just become numb to it? I mean, let me ask you, anybody fly recently? How many of you paid perfect attention while I stood up there and showed you how to buckle a seatbelt again? Okay, I got to tell you, I get pretty annoyed with the redundancy there. And if you go to some of the countries that I go to, you'll hear it in four languages. It literally takes an hour to go through all of them. It sounds like a man is speaking in tongues, and then every once in a while they go, aeroplane. <laughs> you know, it, that, that's the most entertaining thing that happens. And, and I'm pretty sure that I know how to buckle my seatbelt. And I'm also pretty sure that if there's a loss in cabin pressure, my Christian ethic will not allow me to put a mask on myself before my child. I don't know who decided that, but they were a sinner. The Beatitudes are not like a cabin steward telling you to put your seatbelt on. And no matter how many times you've heard them, I promise there is still something to digest in them. Let me start with Christ's standard versus the world's. I want to read you again what a scholar has written. How thoroughly Christ's conception of blessedness contradicts the popular estimate of happiness. This preacher, speaking of Christ, seems studiously to reverse the world's judgment. He frames his words so as to fly in the face of public opinion and the consent of men. This startling contradiction between Christ and the world rests on radical differences in their way of looking at human life. Can we say that the Beatitudes do not represent the average person's worldview. How many of you get really excited? Let's not ask you. You'll be less objective about yourself. Let's be more objective about your neighbor. They're usually who we're best at judging, right? How many of you have a neighbor that you can just see dancing for joy and excited that they got a chance to be persecuted? Wow, so the Beatitudes are entirely opposed to the thinking of this world. Is it any wonder that in Luke, the 16th chapter and 15th verse, you find these words? You can stay in Matthew. I, I rarely lie when I preach, and occasionally they'll put these on the screen for you. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. How many times have you been at a country club or in a restaurant at an anniversary dinner and heard people sitting around you that were not saved going, oh, it is so good to be meek. We'll get a chance to inherit the earth. I, for one, have never heard such a statement. 
How many times have you heard people extol the virtues of mercy towards others? I've heard mercy extolled many times. I've been in traffic court. I've, I've heard people say, yeah, I need mercy, judge. I have never heard a lost man extolling the virtue of extending mercy to other people. How contrary are the words of Christ to the system of this world. So much so that the man who stands as president of the United States now when he was once a senator in 2006 made fun of this very passage from the floor of the United States House of Representatives. He made fun. Hey, you can YouTube it. It's there. I played it from this pulpit two weeks ago. He made fun of blessed are the peacemakers. How could you sustain a nation like that? And yet these words were written to individuals and a nation. I want to assure you that it is very practical, that it is very spiritual, that it is very unpopular but very needed. And I want to live them with all of my heart. Keep your finger in Matthew 5 and go with me to Psalm verse chapter 49. Say there when you were there. If I've already offended you, I make no apology. You can get an apology from me later when you hug me and tell me why you were offended. My heart's desire is to display the attributes of Christ. I do a poor job of it. Just this morning, I mean, what a ridiculous concept to take a human being like me. As human beings go, I'm about as unrefined as they get. And put me on display for the glories of Christ. And yet, he likes to take the lowly. He likes to take those who are not of noble birth. He likes to take those who used to be the sons of thunder and make them the apostles of love. And he's chosen to put us on display, as foolish as that would seem, because it showcases his wisdom. Just this morning, I got my feelings hurt. And I had to go talk to two brothers. And I realized while I was speaking, it was completely unintentional. And I had to hug them and say, I'm sorry. Didn't mean to get my feelings hurt. Saints, this is rough. There is nothing easy about displaying the Beatitudes. And yet, it is the center of Christianity. Are you in Psalm 49? Hear this, all you peoples. Come on now, say all you peoples. By the way, you peoples is an interesting way to say you nations of the world, right? So if you ever have been very offended that somebody said you people need to do this because they were speaking about your racial group, they were speaking about your geographical group, your knitting group, I don't care what it is, somehow or another, the Bible does the same thing. Hear this, all you peoples. He's calling us out from whatever group we belong to. Listen, all you who live in this world, both low and high, rich and poor alike. My mouth will speak words of wisdom. The utterance from my heart will give understanding. It's interesting. The one who wrote this are the sons of Korah. Korah was destroyed in a rebellion. How many of you know if you saw daddy get swallowed by the earth, you might repent. You might get your heart right. You might run after God with all. You might have written another song that said, even if the earth opens up and mountains fall in the sea, my heart will stand with you, Lord. The gospel, the gospel is more important than our family lines. 
The gospel is more important than all of those other allegiances. He says, I, I will turn my ear to a proverb. With the harp, I will expound my riddle. Why should I fear when evil days come, when wicked deceivers surround me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast about their great riches. I will not be preaching about the prosperity lie today. I do it almost every Sunday. I will simply mention that I don't think this man ever had in mind that he would be speaking about people who claim to stand for God, boasting about their wealth. I think he probably had in mind the lost. This shows you just how far off base the modern church has become. When men stand behind pulpits and brag about the jets that they fly in, they are very, very far from the biblical worldview. Verse 7, No man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. The ransom for his life is costly. No payment is ever enough that he should live on forever and not see decay. All of your money cannot buy you eternal life. How strange then that we hear words like, it is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom and the poor are rich in faith. And then this psalm, all the money in the world will not buy you eternal life and we still spend our lives trying to accumulate money. How very different the world's standards are from the kingdom of God. For all can see that wise men die. The foolish and the senseless alike perish. Their tombs will remain their houses forever, their dwellings for endless generations. Though they had named lands after themselves or maybe buildings and pews. But man, despite his riches, does not endure. He is like the beast that perish. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves and their followers who approve of their sayings. In this day of self-help gospel, in this day of three points to become a better, more successful you, understand that the Bible actually says those who are trusting in themselves and those who approve of their sayings is under a curse. With all of my heart, I want to live like Christ completely free from curses from disobedience. Like sheep, they are destined for the grave and death will feed on them. The upright will rule over them in the morning. Their forms will decay in the grave far from the princely mansions. Far from the princely mansions. When you think of a great man of God, can everybody just take a second and do that? Give me, think of a great man of God. Wonder what came to your mind. Was he brown skinned, barefooted, working in Southeast Asia? Was he on the east side of Africa, praying for those with elephantitis? Was he in Indonesia? Or did he just happen to sell an awful lot of books in the United States? What is it to be a great man of God? Is it to have a princely mansion? Is it to have a secret service detail follow you around? I know you're a great man of God when more people listen to you. Well, what does that say about the papacy? What does that say about our politicians? How many of you believe politicians often lie? Those of you that do not have your hands raised, you're either naive or you're sleeping. And yet lots and lots of people listen listen to them. The size of a man's audience has nothing to do with the favor of God in his life. Do not be overawed. Somebody say overawed. Overawed. 
That's not a pretty word, is it? Overawed. Do not. You can be a little bit raw, but don't be overawed. You can be rubbed a little bit wrong, but don't go get full-blown blisters over this. When a man grows rich, when the splendor of his house increases, for he will take nothing with him when he dies. His splendor will not descend with him. Though while he lived, he counted himself. Oh, my goodness. What What does the world call a blessing? The world calls it a blessing when you're at ease. The world calls it a blessing when you have to exert no faith. The world calls it a blessing when you are never in trouble and never need to be saved. The world calls it a blessing when you can rely completely on your own arm and no trust in God is needed. Though while he lived, he counted himself blessed and men praise you when you prosper. It's almost like you were describing our time. He will join the generation of his fathers who will never see the light of life. What men praise does not result in eternal life. A man who has riches without understanding is like a beast that perish. That may seem harsh. My whole point is that you can hang the Beatitudes on the wall and no one will ever be offended by it. You can get a bookmark from your grandmother's book club that has the Beatitudes on them and you can throw it in your Bible and leave it on the back dash in your car. Nobody will ever be upset about it. It is when you actually live the Beatitudes, when you be the attitude that we're talking about, that suddenly it starts to ruffle feathers. And the first group of feathers that it will ruffle are yours. And the reason being is because this has come to us in poetic speech. It has the rhythm and meter of a beautiful poem. And if you like the older, more universally accepted translations, it literally sounds like Shakespeare were writing. Living them is not quite as flowingly beautiful. It knocks skin off. (laughs) It tears flesh away. It leaves you standing with only the regenerated work of God in the narrow way. When we think on these things, I want to read you a progression of attitudes that happens. I want to show you how one verse relates to the next, but in doing so, there's a danger. We live in a step-oriented world. If you have directions on how to assemble something, You read step one, and step one logically leads you to step two. And I understand that. This is Greek thought, and it makes great sense. It's built most of the world. The idea, though, is that in step one, we achieve something when we're building. And that achievement allows us to move on to the second achievement. You follow me so far? Checks in a box. I did it. I mastered it. Time to move on. The progression of attitudes and the Beatitudes are not something that you achieve and therefore merit step two. They are something that one step leads you into an ever-increasing step of grace, a new found appreciation for the depth of your Lord's love for you. There should be a special warning on this note. It's not because a man is poor in spirit that his is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, but it is not because of his poor spirit that he has earned the kingdom of heaven. There is a dramatic difference between saying that a man is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and saying blessed are the poor in spirit, they have the kingdom because of it. 
That may seem like a distinction without a difference at first glance, but I promise it will become clear. It is not because a man is poor in spirit that his is the kingdom of heaven in the sense that one state will grow into another or will be its result. Still less is the one the reward of the other. The connecting link, so to speak, the theological coupling between the state and the promise is Christ himself. When Christ finds you in a certain condition, he does something about it, something that you could not do for yourself. When he finds you in a certain place, could the Egyptians rescue themselves from slavery? The Egyptians held the Israelites in bondage. Could the Israelites have simply risen up and overthrown the Egyptians? Well, it's happened in human history, but it did not happen in this case. God saw their oppression, and so he decided to do something about it. We have a God that reacts certain ways to certain situations. In fact, it would be best to look at the ministry of Jesus. Turn with me to the first chapter of John, and perhaps this will get clearer. Tell me there when you were there. In the first chapter, look with me at the 14th verse. Anybody else there? Where are the rest of you? Are you there? The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. What is Jesus full of? Grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this is he whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. How do you get a blessing in Christ? Can it be earned? Can it be earned? You receive from his grace one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I don't want to take an aside too far. It says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Your Western mind wants to set those two things as contradictory, juxtaposed to each other. Moses gave us the law, but, but, Jesus gave us grace and truth. That is not how the sentence is written, not in English and not in Greek. Moses gave us a standard. The standard is good, it is holy, it is just, and it is right. Jesus gave us grace and truth. Grace is good, holy, just, right. Truth is holy, just, right. One of the problems with standards is we often don't like what they say about us. How funny that in the modern grace movement, We simply want to throw out the standard and call that grace. Grace looks at you falling short of a standard and shows you favor anyway and brings you truth. There is an enormous difference between receiving Jesus and saying, because I've received Jesus, my sin will never be counted against me no matter what I do, and saying, because I've received Jesus, I no longer want to sin and all I want to do is what he tells me to do. When we think of God, that's hard to conceptualize outside of Jesus. It's so hard to conceptualize that John 1 and verse 18 says it this way. No one has ever seen God. 
That word seen doesn't just mean to look at with your eyes. It means to comprehend, to grasp, to wrap your mind around. But God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. In Jesus, we see the character of God displayed in ways we can understand it. By the way, this is what your neighbor is supposed to do, is look at you and see the character of God displayed in ways he can understand it. We have the same mission as Jesus did. This is why the Bible calls us the body of Christ. And yet we need to look at where this all begins. What is the foundational revelation that has to happen before we can ever get to the end goal, which is displaying the characteristics of God? In Matthew 5, we start with the word blessed. Some of the newer translations say happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. That's almost a contradiction in terms, isn't it? I'm not picking on newer translations, not at all. Happy is a legitimate translation or it wouldn't be translated that way. And yet something in the word happy leaves you falling short of what this word seems to actually mean. This word is makiros. We're going to put it on the screen. It's in your bulletin as well. Makiros, according to the top six or seven lexicons that I could find, means blessed, possessing the favor of God. One went on to say it differs from the word happy and that a person who is happy could be viewed as simply having good luck. But makiros means that God has favored you, not luck. It's the equivalent of saying something about his kingdom is touching you. It's not happy are those who are poor in spirit. It's simply a way to say blessed means the favor of God is on those who are poor in spirit. The favor of God. When we think of Beatitudes, we're describing the conditions of mankind in which the favor of God will dwell. Would you like to know how you find God's favor? One of you. I get you. The rest of you are writing. Uh, you, you have notes in front of you, and so you don't want to leave without the definitions. I've given you Strong's numbers in your bulletin so that you can look them up if you like. I'm giving you a condensed definition. I'm saying every time you see the word blessed, you could put the favor of God is on this person. The favor of God or blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What an interesting idea. Maybe if we want to think about the word blessed and the favor of God being on someone, every once in a while it helps you to understand what the opposite is. Have you ever not known how to define something but you knew what it was definitely not? There are words that have such intangible qualities, it's easier to understand the opposite of them than it is to describe the totality of what they are. The opposite of mikiros or blessed is elenos. It means worthy of pity, pitiable, full of misery, wretched, or miserable. That's not a pretty word, is it? Elenios, <laughs> wretched. Some examples of it in the New Testament are passages like in 1 Corinthians 15, 19. Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, Paul says... If there is no resurrection of the dead, we are to be elenios more than all men. We're to be pitied 
That would be a terrible, terrible thing. It's the opposite of the favor of God. Another time that it shows up in the Word is in Revelation 3.17 where Jesus said, you say I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, I don't need anything, but you don't realize that you're elenios. You are pitiable, wretched. Do you mean to tell me that you could be rich? You could not have a need of anything, but in the eyes of God not only not have favor, but be wretched and pitiable. That's the opposite of blessed. How strange it is that our natural eyes and our natural senses tell us a blessing is something that God says is wretched, poor, and pitiable. And the things that we often would find offensive, wretched, poor, and pitiable are the things that God says in that situation, my favor will rest on you. How many of you have really, really, outside of the understanding of Matthew 5, just aspired to have a broken spirit? I don't know very many people that when you say, what would you like to be when you grow up? I'd like to be completely crushed in spirit. That would be my goal. I hope, um, I hope to be so broken and so contrite that I could be described in Hebrew as being completely deflated. That's my goal. That's probably not what you said on career day in the second grade, is it? Before we get into actually what poor in spirit means, could I talk to you just for a second about the character of God that will help you understand poor in spirit? Hebrews 12, starting in verse 14, says this. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. <laughs> Let's take this for a second. How many of you have been able to obtain holiness by your own efforts? So when I was lost, I knew that it was wrong to curse. I knew that because I was being drugged to church. Uh, and while I was being drugged to church, I felt the conviction of God, but I had no ability to do anything about it. Does that make sense? I knew it was wrong, but the very wrong thing that I knew, I had no power to stop doing. I decided that uh, I would punish myself because that's what religion does. I... Uh, I would do push-ups every time I said a foul word. I know that seems silly to you, but I was 18. I could do over 100 push-ups in one sitting without a break, but I couldn't go an hour without saying a foul word. What does that tell you about your efforts in holiness? And yet the word says make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You know... I one time told an elder in this church that I was not money motivated. I was motivated by the lack of money. In other words, I could care less about having money until I needed something that I did not have enough money to get. Does that make sense? You've not heard me talk very much about money in months and months and months. Then we feel a call to go to Romania, feel a call to go to Peru, and suddenly I'm selling everything I have. We're, looking, we're scraping together pennies. Why? Because for me, it's the means to get where God has told us to go. You know how you recognize poverty in your spirit? When you don't have what it takes to do what God has told you to do. Oh, yeah, maybe we say that again. When God has set a standard for you that you cannot meet 
and you have tried to meet it. Where are we at, single men? You've tried to meet it, and you tried to meet it, and your very best efforts leave you feeling depleted like a pauper. When we speak of poverty of spirit, you need to think of what God is so that we can understand poverty of spirit. How many of you tried to be loving? Good Lord, we're in trouble. How many of you tried to be loving? Numbers 14, 18 says, The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. He doesn't have to try. It's what he is. 1 John 4, 8 says, Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. He doesn't have to try to be loving. He doesn't have to put forward a great deal of effort and work at it. It is his very nature. Some people... And high theology call it an immutable characteristic of God. It's something that cannot be taken away. It's something that he never loses. Church, how many of you have tried to be loving and fallen short of it? When you compare yourself to the character of God, how short are you in regards to love? We honor a woman named Rosa Parks, and she should be honored. It was a dispute over a bus seat. How strange it is that in a nation that was supposed to be Christian, we could fight over giving up a bus seat. God doesn't fight over giving up his son. Are you hearing me? We sit and listen in the church over and over and over about the attributes of Christ. You hear message after message, and I I hope that that's what you hear in our messages. I recognize that's not what's taught everywhere. And then you need a policeman in the parking lot to direct traffic because you might have someone kill someone else if you didn't. What does that tell us? How far do we fall from the character of God? And that's just one attribute. What if we moved on to something like God is just? Deuteronomy 32.4, I will proclaim the name of the Lord. He is faithful. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Just to borrow an example, just, just to have a little fun with it. How many of you have speedometers in your car? That's good. You pass inspection, Dustin won't fail you. And in your car, you know very well that the speed limit is 45, and it's clearly marked in front of you that it's 45, but you believe you have a buffer. Now listen, y'all, y'all, y'all are smiling, but you're making no noise. Some of you believe your buffer is 4 to 5 miles an hour. Some of you set your cruise between 8 and 10 miles an hour. And some of us just bind the police and loose the gas. God is just. I'm not bringing the speed limit into the moral dilemma because it would be too personally convicting and I would need to get saved at this meeting. (laughs) I've always struggled with why it's okay in Germany and not okay here, but this is the way of the world. We won't go into long treaties on Romans 13 and obeying the laws of the land. I would simply say that God's justice demands perfection. How short of perfection do you fall? How much does it affect you to know that? Have we heard 
grace with so much grease that we no longer realize how short we fall of perfection? Has our agape become so sloppy that we're sure God just loves us so much that he's no longer just? In Revelation 15, 3, the latter half of the sentence says, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways. Is that a true statement or not? If it's a true statement, then God's justice did not go away in what people call the New Testament dispensation. It didn't go away at the cross, God's justice. He's still the same God with the same character. How are you feeling as far as your spiritual bank account with justice? If justice in the strictest sense was applied to your life, would you be poor in spirit? Say, wait, wait, wait. I've reformed my ways, Pastor, and I hope you have. I know most of you, and most of you have reformed most of your ways. <laughs> Still working to identify all of those areas where we haven't. Let's just say that we decided to be really upright moral men. We said, God, we want to satisfy your justice from this point forward. We're going to be holy. But what about before this point? What do you do about the debts that you could not pay? What happens with the justice of God if before this moment in time, everybody's life you touched, you wrecked? What do you do with that? Is there anybody in here that was spiritually bankrupt? You have more just debt against you than could ever be paid. We're beginning to tap on the door of what it means to be poor in spirit. We haven't even gotten to holiness and mercy. 1 Peter 1.15 says, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Not be holy on Sunday. Not be holy on Wednesday. Not be holy in your prayer closet. Be holy in all you do. Well, what do you do in a day? Well, I had to water the lawn. Were you holy while you watered the lawn? I had to go to the mailbox. Were you holy while you did that? I had to watch TV with the kids, you know. Were you holy while you did that? Holy in all you do because he is. How far from hitting that perfect goal are you? When we think of poor in the spirit, when you think of what the older translations say is poverty of spirit, blessed, favored by God, are the poor in spirit. You're favored by God when you recognize your spiritual condition. This word poor, Tokos, it's in your bulletin. Strong's number 4434. I'm going to read you the whole definition and then give you the summary. To crouch, cower like a beggar, poor and helpless. Someone in abject poverty, not just struggling to get by, not just a little bit poor, abject poverty, utter helplessness, complete destitution. How many people have you known that you might describe as destitute? You say, well, that brother's destitute. His business went under. His wife left him. His kids don't talk to him anymore. He's, he's destitute. That's not completely destitute because he's still wearing clothes. 
He still has a watch. He still has the ability to eat today. Somewhere, even if it's a meal given to him, he's got something. This is completely destitute. One translation, or rather commentary, lexicon, I should say, says figuratively in Matthew 5, 3, poor in spirit means those who recognize their utter spiritual helplessness. When we're describing the character of God and what it is that God favors, the very first step to finding God's favor is realizing just how incredibly short of his character you personally are. How completely helpless to affect change in your own life. How utterly destitute of good you are in your own life. This is an offense in the modern church. We say that he basically died to give you help in this life, heaven in the next, give you your best life now. How you, we all know that you're good people, but let's come add some Jesus to it. And you're a pretty good old boy, but now you'll inherit heaven. Jesus said the very first thing that God will favor is when you recognize the gross disparity between what he has called you to and where you're presently at and see yourself as utterly incapable of changing your condition. Christ is not often preached that way anymore. And he's not often preached that way anymore because a hundred out of 110 people don't run to an altar for that feel-good message. This is not the raise your hand, fill out an inquiry card, we will mail you your certificate of salvation kind of message. I want you to understand how revolutionary what Jesus said is. Have you ever gotten the impression that we were in a gospel-hardened time? What do you think he's preaching to? These people have had the word of God since Moses. And the vast majority are missing it to the place where he says, whores and tax collectors come into the kingdom ahead of you. Why? Because they recognize their poverty of spirit. Says one man comes to the altar and he beats his chest and he tears his clothes and knows that he is a wretched sinner. And another comes and prays, thank you, God, I'm not like him. Boy, this is so applicable to our situation today. We've heard the Beatitudes and heard them and heard them and heard them and they're probably in some decorative piece of art in our houses. And the very first one, poverty of spirit. The best messages I've ever heard preached on this in my life, we still saw so little of it in the human beings that preached them, this one included. It's an easy concept to explain. It is terrible to wrestle with. You can't come to Christ and you cannot be favored in God's eyes without coming to the place where you recognize what a train wreck you actually are. Otherwise, you will be trying to put a band-aid over your mortal wound and the band-aid's name is Jesus' religion. Jesus did not die to make bad men better men. He died to take dead men and cause them to live. 
He didn't come to elevate your situation, your finances, or anything else. He came for a total reversal of your state. It doesn't happen, though, when we don't even know our own state. We read the parables that are written in Matthew, and we're sure that they're written to the lost. And yet the people that he said them to believed they were saved. live in a nation where the predominant religion is supposed to be Christianity, but the same poll says most doubt their neighbor is a Christian. What does that tell us? It tells us we don't know our own condition. We might know how far our neighbor is from God, but we very rarely know how far we are from God. And we don't like this kind of preaching. Like, listen, I need to hear something uplifting I need to be blessed in my inner man. I need, I need to be built up, not torn down. You can't build upon leprosy. You cannot build a house that is riddled with mold. You have to tear the whole house down. We're trying to build on foundations that are not laid by Christ. They're not the house on the rock. They're the, the house on the uh, conglomerate sand and rock. Church, when we recognize where we really are, it's the beginning of all real wisdom. By the way, the idea, Psalm 14 says, that a fool says in his heart, there's no God. He doesn't say it in his intellect, he says it in his heart. It is not an intellectual decision to say there is no God. It's not something that someone reasoned out. It's a heart decision. It's the opposite of poverty of spirit. It's a way around poverty. Have you ever noticed with creation arguments? We say, oh, well, you, you, you know what? I, I think there was a big bang. And see, all this swirling stuff, it, it spit out stars and, and, and eventually planets. And then on the planet, there was this primordial soup. And, and out of it, you know, grew some lizard man or what? I mean, it... <laughs> It gets downright ridiculous. Then where did the bang come from? I'm not saying that that's how anything happened. I'm simply saying it is a diversion. To say there is no God is to try to work your way around the comparison between God's character and yours. It's a heart decision. And now we say, oh, no, no, there's a God. We even say in God we trust on our money. But are you studying his character and recognizing the difference between him and you? In the charismatic world, so often we, we simply say we're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We stand in Christ, so we're therefore complete. Because you stand in Christ, you're credited with that. That, mean, that does not alleviate you from the obligation to actually be right. It does not alleviate you from the, uh, op, the obligation to actually strive for holiness. The Bible over and over and over says without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Do you want to just be declared positionally righteous or do you want to strive for righteousness? The theologians descend on the room and alleviate all conviction with a simple nod of the head, maybe an uh-huh at the end of someone else's prayer. We're suddenly a new creation in Christ Jesus. But what if you're not? What if you never came to the gut-wrenching, wrecking truth that the creation that you are is devoid of anything good. 
when you ask people their testimonies, when you're asked your testimony, does it say that you've been in church all your life and one day you got more serious about Jesus? That's not much of a testimony according to the Beatitudes. You may have been in church all of your life and that's a great thing and I don't disparage it at all. My kids have been in church all their life whether they wanted to be or not and as long as I'm alive they'll never have a choice. But they still have to come to a place where their very best is filthy, disgusting, dirtiness before the living God. And they cry out for change. We saw this happen to Judah just months ago. I'm proud of you, Judah. He stood up like a man in front of an entire congregation and he said, I will not leave this service without telling you the truth about my state. That was poverty of spirit. The first step in the kingdom is to evaluate your position. How can you repent when you don't know that you need to repent? What would you be repenting of? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want you to know something. When you are utterly wrecked in your soul, Psalm 34, 18 says that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. When you're utterly destroyed in your soul, you're not far from the kingdom. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. When were you crushed in your spirit? I don't mean just convicted, knew you needed to be a better man. I don't mean mildly irritated with your present circumstances and in need of a, a rescue. I mean when were you crushed by the weight of the knowledge that you were nothing like God called you to be? Because that is the very first step in coming into the kingdom of God. If you don't come in through the gate... How can you be in the kingdom? You might be walking among those who are in the kingdom. You might have learned the language of the kingdom. You might even pay what you think are the taxes of the king. And yet never have the revival in your soul because you never declared it actually dead. It was simply language to you. And yet many of you have come to the place where you were completely spiritually helpless, destitute in every way. And it causes something. Verse 4 of Matthew 5. Blessed, favored by God, are those who mourn. When you recognize the condition of your own soul and it causes you to mourn. You know, you can be a little bit sad. I see people who have sinned and they're a little bit sad all the time. Sometimes they're sad they got caught. Sometimes they're sad you know about their sin. Sometimes they're sad for what their sin is costing them. Have you ever been to a funeral of a small child? Look over at his parents. That's what mourning looks like. You want to know what mourning is? It's when an eight-year-old dies on a four-wheeler in Angleton, Texas. You want to know what mourning is? It's when a drunk driver kills your only son. That's mourning. 
When you recognize the condition of your soul and it causes you to be distraught to the place you would do anything. You ever watch somebody bury a child? What would they do to reverse that situation? The better question is what wouldn't they do? Don't tell me you're mourning over sin when you plan to do it again next week. Mourning over your situation brings the comfort of God. You say, hey, brother, I don't know whether you know we're Pentecostal, but we're the charismatic kind. We don't really, you know, the other travailing mourning stuff. You're missing me. I'm not talking about begging God. I'm talking about being broken over your own state to the place where it distresses you. That's the ones that receive his comfort. Some of you get broken over other people's states. I hate, I don't even watch TV anymore, but I hate when I'm in someone's house or I'm in a waiting room somewhere and, and the little weird dogs for the uh, humans, humane society come on. It's a gnarly looking dachshund, you know, weird teeth and all. And, all. and, and the sad music's playing and everybody goes, oh, and you're, you're moved in your spirit for the dog about the state of your own soul? Say, but I believe in a Christianity that focuses on them. You can't bring them anything until you've dealt with your own situation. You cannot go teach before you've told. What would you be bringing them? You bring them band-aids. You bring them food. You bring them temporary relief. But you yourself are slaves to sin and, and pretty happy about it. There are men that are calling what I'm preaching sin management. I'm a lordship preacher. I'm, a, I'm mixing law and grace. I wonder what Bible they've read. You cannot find grace until you know your very great need for grace. And grace teaches you to say no to ungodliness, not gives you an excuse to continue in it. The grace of God has appeared to all men to teach us to say no to ungodliness. Yeah. Mourning over your situation. This leads us to blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. Protes. Protes is an interesting word. To skip the six or seven definitions here and summarize them, it is that attitude of spirit where we accept God's dealings with us as good. And do not dispute or resist. This is a difficult word. Meek. It's fallen out of use in the English language. The Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology says this about it. Meekness does not identify the weak, but more precisely the strong, who have placed themselves in a position of weakness where they persevere without giving up. The use of the Greek word when applied to animals makes this clear, for it means tame, when applied to an animal. In other words, such animals have not lost their strength but have learned to control the destructive instincts that prevent them from living in harmony with others. What does it mean to be meek? It means that you recognize the destitution of your soul, you've mourned over it, and you've decided to be tamed by your master. It means the laying down of your life so that you can take up his. It means that if I'm left to my own nature, which has ruled me my whole life, all I do is cause more poverty of spirit. And I am so mournful over it. 
that I met the first time in my life saying, I'm going to yield that control to you, Lord. Even if I had the power to affect this situation, which I don't, I won't do it. I will only do what you tell me to do. What an interesting thing that the meek are the very ones who will inherit the earth. The ones who have surrendered their own lives are given the entire planet. Poverty of spirit leads you to mourning. Mourning over your poverty of spirit leads you into meekness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. When you recognize that you no longer control your life, when you're ready to say, I'm standing before Pilate. Did Jesus have the, the, the power to change his situation? He had more than 12 legions at his disposal. It's the ultimate example of meekness. He might could have changed it. In fact, he could have. You usually can't. But he submitted to it whether it was pleasant or not. Meekness is his lordship over you. No wonder we don't like the word in today's language. You almost never hear the word meek used in a positive light. For us, it's synonymous with weak. If you realize how very weak you actually are, something in you will cry out for meekness. You know, it's an amazing thing. In Christ we'll learn, let's just say your word of faith, right? And praise God, who is not believing in a word of faith? I'm simply speaking of a particular genre. So we'll learn to quote that we trample on lions and scorpions and then we'll turn around and slander somebody whose doctrine is different than ours. Tell me we're not weak. Come on. You want to know the ugliest circles you could ever travel in? They're the Christian circles. They are. We expect more from each other and we're harder on each other when we find out what you already knew was true. We're all desperately in need of a Savior. Amen. You know, I got lost relatives that have slept with each other's spouses. Not celebrating it, it's sick. They still forgive each other because they never expected much from each other anyway. They recognize this one just did what I would have done if I had the chance. And I got Christians in my own family, at least those that profess Christ, that cannot fellowship with each other over an argument of how to apply the Sabbath. Cannot fellowship with each other over shellfish. Something that I think was fairly well decided in Acts 15 for the whole world. We can be the most divisive, nastiest group on the planet. Church, poverty of spirit causes something. When you are broken in your condition, you begin to mourn over it. You begin to be willing to lay it down. You start to invite God's control in your life. I'm definitely not going to call names because we would have to call every name in the building, but there's something in your life that's been haunting you. You've put down many sins, but this one just keeps coming back up. And the psychological warfare begins. You begin wondering whether or not you're really saved and dwelling in condemnation. So you punish yourself for a while. Then you come to church and decide to feel better about your life. Only to repeat the same cycle over and over and over. 
poverty of spirit is when that situation has become so abhorrent to you that you actually hate it. Something about it no longer is enticing, it is disgusting. You have mourned over it because it has sent you so far from God. Don't misunderstand me. God's not been far from you. You've been far from Him. If your sin could separate God from you, no one would ever be saved. It separates you from God. It causes condemning thoughts in you to keep you from Him. It does not keep Him from you. This world had never been more sinful when He entered it to save it. But when we don't have a correct assessment of our own heart and we just do window dressings, we're not really mourning, then we're not really ready for his lordship in that area either. And so the endless cycle just keeps going and going and going. And you see that some people are free, but you're, you're pretty sure they probably have got something like, like you do. And go find a hyper-grace church, they just won't even notice it. Don't even talk about it. You just count it dead whether it is or not and, and yield to it totally. They call what I'm teaching works. If it's works, it's works I don't know how to do. I would say it's an act of grace that he will free you when you grieve over it. He says those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. You know when you get really, really hungry? When you are really, really empty. When you're broken in your spirit over your condition and you've mourned over your condition and you're in a place where you say, I want your lordship, I'll lay it down. I'll lay whatever it is down, any new direction, Lord, whatever it is, I want you, I'm hungry. He provides a way out. He provides righteousness. He provides it. This is not an exception for a single person in this room, but the devil spent your whole life trying to make you the exception so that he could keep you a captive. You tell yourself things like, well, this is just my personality. It just runs in my family, you know. Sin runs in everybody's family. Say, so, well, that one, that one must just, uh, he must just have excellent willpower. Willpower's never saved a human being and has never stopped to sin. Willpower at the very best delays the fight to a moment where your integrity fails. You need the grace of God to fill you. Those who hunger and thirst for it because without it, I'm completely destitute, Lord. I'm mourning over it. I'll lay it all down. Will you give me help? He says, I favor a man like that. Amen. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. What does blessed mean? Does it mean happy are those? No, it means God favors a man who has learned to hunger for him. Amen. I'm going to tell you the truth. He met me in such a powerful way that I got a belly full. I mean, I was ready to, I was Mr. Pious and I had no idea because I wasn't struggling with anything that I knew of. You know, ignorance is bliss. I am so much more hungry for him today than I was then because I am so much more aware of my failure and my fault. Just this morning, I go to talk to two of my close friends about something that's important, and I realize I heard them just by asking them. I can barely do anything right. And yet, when you hunger for him to do it through you, you know where I failed today? 
thought and I acted. And the thought and the act technically meet all of the right definitions because we're Christians, we can do that. I didn't hunger for the way He wanted it done. I didn't yearn for Him recognizing that without Him telling me I was likely to screw it up. And so I did. How many thousand times has I had, and we just, you know, I mean, it's all under grace, it's all under grace. Whether it's under grace or not, it's not the way you were called to live. Do you want to go around hurting each other? Was it written to Christians or non-Christians? Stop backbiting each other or you will devour one another. Written to Christians or non-Christians? I mean, think on this subject, saints. This Bible was addressing people who were in covenant with God. Certainly it is addressing us. Broken in your sin, poor in spirit, mourning over it, desiring comfort from God because you have none of your own. Meek, meaning that you've laid down your will and you want His at all cost. Hungry for His righteousness. Oh man, happy day. The day that He first stamped upon your heart His righteousness. Do you remember it? If you don't, then it didn't happen. Not somebody else telling you, oh, you prayed after me, now you're saved. I'm talking about the moment where his spirit bared witness with your spirit and you realize I did all that and I no longer feel guilty. I'm new. I'm new. I remember it, you know. Everybody who lived around me at the time remembers it because I ran to every human being I knew when I told them. Jennifer had the best response. We'll see. She'd seen me do a lot of yucky things. Just a few weeks earlier, I still had scabs on my hands from the old life. I was still in legal trouble from the attorney's son that attacked my fist with his face. And God changed me. I never could have done it. I've been trying for years. I was first drugged to church as a nine-year-old little boy. All church was for me was a smaller pool to date in. Some of you church brats just laughed because you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. But the day he stamped his righteousness in my heart stands out forever. You know what it made me want to do? Be merciful to everybody that I met. I was such an object of mercy in that moment that I could no longer hold men's wrongs against them. Somewhere out there in this world, there's a brilliant guy named Baron. He barely ever worked out, but he was the second strongest guy in the school. He barely ever studied, but he made a perfect ACT score. What he excelled in at the time was drinking. I took great delight in making sure Baron felt inferior to me. And I did that because if you can knock off the strongest, then what does it say about you? And now, full of God's righteousness and desiring with all of my heart to show the kind of mercy I've been shown, I apologize to him. He spit in my face. Is that hard? Is that hard to anybody? You know, in that moment, it wasn't because I was so freshly stamped with His righteousness, such an object of His mercy that what I wanted to do most was hug Baron. 
That's what I wanted to do most. Today, I'm hungering for more of that. In that moment, not hard at all. Are we supposed to go closer to the Lord or further away the longer we're in this? Poverty of spirit is not a one-time deal. You hear me? Mourning over your situation is not a one-time deal. Meekness is not a one-time deal. Hungering for righteousness, not a one-time deal. Maybe that's why the Hebrews called this a walk with God. Blessed are the pure in heart. When you've been filled with God's righteousness and because of receiving His mercy, you begin to show people mercy. Something happens. You start to see the world differently. Isaiah 6 says, Glory, glory, glory. The whole earth is full of the glory of the Lord. Habakkuk 2.14 says, The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. Well, which is it? Is it already full or not? The earth is full of God's glory, but it takes someone who's been stamped with righteousness, somebody who's learning to see the world as God sees it, extending mercy to be pure in heart. And then you start to see God everywhere. Are you hearing me? What you do towards other people is a reflection of what God has done towards you or not done towards you. And when he stamped his righteousness in you, your yearning is to see others stamped with righteousness. When he has shown you mercy, you yearn to show others mercy. This has a purifying effect upon your heart. And you start to see God everywhere. A missionary named Donnie Schaefer gave me his testimony when I was just a young man. And I'll never forget it. Aside from all of the usual experiences of having been wicked and then made righteous of walking into a charismatic church and pretty sure that they were Indians dancing around him, circling the wagon. He said, when I got in the car, after being filled with the Holy Ghost, REO Speedwagon was on the radio. And they were singing about Jesus. I was a young man and I knew who REO Speedwagon was and I knew they had never sung about Jesus. His point was he saw God's glory in everything. To the pure, all things are pure. Now, I imagine sometime later he quit listening to REO Speedwagon, and this is not an endorsement to not become sanctified. It's simply different eyes to see the world because God has done something to you. To the impure, the Bible says, nothing is pure. You can assign false motive to the purest of intention. Why? Because your own heart is tainted. Pure in heart, see God. When you begin to see God everywhere, when you're pure in heart and you begin to see God, something else happens. Favored are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. This is one I really could preach about forever. Put Psalm 34, 14 on the screen. Blessed are the peacekeepers. No. Blessed are the peace desirers. No. Blessed are the peace makers. For they will be called sons of God. In Hebrew, a son is a bar. It means you're a chip off the old block. You are like your father. Blessed are the peacemakers because they will be recognized as like their father. Favored by God are those who make peace because they will be like their father. What is our God like? He takes action to make peace. Psalm 34, 14, turn from evil 
do good, seek peace, pursue it. These are all action words. Peace does not come through passivity. You are not at peace because you simply decided not to fight or to live in silent protest. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Do you say yes? yes? He was in contention every day of his life. How is he the Prince of Peace and yet at odds with nearly all men? Because he is turning from evil, doing good, seeking peace, pursuing it. You don't have to pursue something that does not naturally try to elude you. What God calls peace, shalom. He defines it in Leviticus 26, but we're not going to go there. What he calls shalom is when everything is in its right order with God and man. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who will fight to put things in their right order because they'll be like God. In what way was God like that? Did he not look upon a world polluted with sin that he could have simply flooded again but instead decide to put his son in the flesh there to fight for what is right? Well, I don't know if Jesus came to fight. He came to die. 1 John 3, 8 says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Oh, man, when you've had poverty of spirit, when you've recognized the difference between God's character and yours, when you've begun to mourn over it, when His Lordship is taking hold of you because you no longer want to steer your life and you hunger for right standing with Him, Having received his mercy, you begin to show mercy. It affects your heart. It becomes pure and you start to see God everywhere. You want to do what God does. You want to bring people into right standing with him. Have you ever wondered why a former racist from Baton Rouge, Louisiana that barely scraped through the educational system? It wasn't that I wasn't smart enough. It's that I couldn't stay in school for fighting. Have you ever wondered why I care so much about my friends in Africa and India and Honduras? Why I'm going back to drag myself up and down the mountains in Peru? Why I'm selling everything I have to go to Romania? Because somebody fought to put me in right standing with God. And I want to do the same for everybody I meet. I want to be like my daddy. Do you remember where this started? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Listen to where it ends. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Friends, when you begin to act like your father, they will persecute you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is? It's a circle. It is not a linear movement. It's not a straight line. You don't ever graduate from poverty of spirit and end up somewhere else. It's a circle.